Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-on show fueled by Elfmark VDS Racing. My name is Neil Morrison. I'm joined today by David Emmett of motormatters.com. And we're going to be discussing the German Grand Prix fallout from the Moto2 and the Moto3 classes. As ever, plenty to get our teeth stuck into, including a masterclass from rookie sensation Pedro Acosta, a masterclass from runaway championship leader Remy Gardner, and a whole host of other talking points. David, we're in a rather uh, rather fancy little uh, cabin in uh, the Netherlands, close to Assen. There's uh, a log fire uh, lit over in the corner there, and it's the 23rd of June. What's going on? I would point out it's a fake log fire. It is actually a gas fire underneath some plastic logs, but it does look very pretty. Um, it's just been a bit nippy, really. Uh, if you'd have been here before Saxon Ring, it was 30 degrees. Um, 34 degrees. I think I was sitting uh, in a state of undress watching uh, some of the uh, some of the free practices. Um, but that's all gone away, and it's a typical Dutch summer weather where um, it could do anything. Thanks for that image. I'm not going to be struggling to concentrate on uh, the rest of the talking points in this show after you said that. But, uh, I mean, it was uh, quite an interesting weekend. We spoke a bit about MotoGP yesterday, and that show's already out. Um, worth checking out if you haven't already. Um, but I mean, let's start with Moto3 because uh, Moto2 is a bit of a runaway race. Moto3, there was plenty of action, plenty of controversy, as there always seems to be in the class at the moment. Um, and it's weird, it's random, it's unpredictable. Yet, we were just looking through the championship. One guy seems to have a habit of finishing in front of all the other ones. Yeah, I mean, I was basically complaining on Twitter about the fact that uh, Moto3 does seem to be extremely random where you have somewhere between 10 and 15 people all heading towards the uh, the finish line. And yet it's the same person who keeps on crossing the finish line first. I mean, the one thing you can say about Pedro Acosta is his uh, racecraft, his strategy, his sense of timing is just absolutely superb. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, he looked kind of quite likely, I think, from the first practice session in, in uh, in Germany, looked super comfortable in FP1 um, and didn't really have any of the dramas through the weekend, having to come through Q1. He was up there for most of the time. And yeah, it was a bit like Portugal. Foggia was doing most of the leading, but Acosta just looked kind of like just so assured uh, behind him. I mean, it really wasn't a surprise at all when he made his attack and then, you know, went for the kill, went for the win. Yeah, I mean, that the, the thing about... Uh, his what really stands out about his riding is the fact that he has the patience which you need as a uh, as a Grand Prix rider. You know, you're not going to uh, what really what you see in a Moto Three race is a lot a lot of you know teenagers getting excited, all trying to lead the race at the same time. Um, but Acosta just waits. He you know he's perfectly happy to wait, sit in the minute, second, third fourth whatever and wait until it's time um and then when it is time he's capable of pushing that little bit and making sure he's in the right place and making the the, the necessary passes to actually lead um uh, at the right time so uh, it's just really mature for someone who's still is he is he, is he 17 yet or is he all oh right he uh yeah there you go for a 17 year old uh, just remarkable yeah, yeah, pretty ridiculous. Um, how he just looks kind of like the, the fully formed, um, title winner at the moment. His uh, lead now is stretched out to, uh, 55 points. And a, and a win rate of 50%, right? Yes, four wins from eight. Uh, not bad going for, uh, your first season in, uh, the world championship. Um, I think Sergio Garcia was slightly unlucky. He got Jeremy Alcobard, uh, <laughs> about two laps from the end. I think Garcia was actually looking pretty likely to at least, um, give Acosta something to think about in the last lap, but Alcoba 
roughed him up and pushed him wide I think at uh, turn 12 on the the penultimate corner it'd been a decent weekend from Garcia decent race up until that point for him too um, <clears throat> and then you look at the championship behind you've got Jamal Masia and 72 points but Masia crashed out um, uh, I'm looking at this championship at the moment and thinking the only one I can really see getting anywhere near Acosta is, is Garcia because Masia just seems to have so much uh, he's just so inconsistent still yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there are some really strong runners. I mean, you know, like Darren Binder has been really strong, uh, and yet he's what, uh, he's only got sixty points. I mean, he had the weirdest weekend, uh, getting black flagged out of Q two, and then also getting a ride through. That seemed uh, excessive for what looked like. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't great riding, but it wasn't sort of a, a extremely dangerous. But he did hit another rider, and he did knock them. Um, uh, he did cause them to crash. No, he caused himself to oh, crash. He caused, well, yeah. well, yeah, but uh, yes, exactly. But he certainly disrupted him. Um, uh, so yes, he, he he deserved a penalty, but the the two penalties were strange. Uh, and then we had the fantastic situation of um, Jeremy Alcoba going into Park Ferme and just basically refusing to leave um, because of the you know the situation he got into with uh, with uh, Garcia so it was uh, it was once again it was a little bit difficult at the end of the uh, at the end of the race to figure out who was actually going to be in third place who's going to be on the podium also because uh, Foggia had exceeded track limits and we were waiting to see whether he would be punished for that or not yeah 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 Foggia um, passed um, Acosta at the bottom of the hill and then exceeded track limits going outside and you think okay that's automatically a penalty but it's only automatically a penalty unless there's a clear disadvantage and in that Acosta uh, sorry Foggia lost uh, two positions I think to Toba and to Alcoba so but uh, yeah Alcoba I mean um, there's so much to to like about the kid Um, it was a I mean it was a really good ride Uh, he qualified Lousily, I think he was way down the order. Alcoba did he even make it into? No, he didn't even make it into Q two because of some stupid riding in Q one. Um, so he was coming from I think around twentieth twentieth position on the grid. You know, it was fantastic for him to be up in the podium fight towards the end at a track that he had never been to before. But again, it's just a bit a bit too loose, isn't it, on occasions from him? And yeah, he doesn't seem to have himself under uh, under control. He doesn't seem to have like we talk about Pedro Acosta's maturity and the way that he manages a race, uh, the way that he sort of you know he, he plans ahead and thinks of everything, it covers all of the bases, sort of thing. Uh, but Alcoba doesn't. Yeah, Alcoba seems to be a really instinctual rider, and he's bags of talent, bags and bags of talent, but. Uh, he doesn't have the maturity. He doesn't have the, um, the the calm to do anything. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's he's in he's a strange one, and also he seems to really lose his temper, and he, he doesn't seem to have any sense of danger. We saw this at Barcelona as well. At Barcelona, he was just being extremely dangerous. Um, uh, the the riding he was doing, and now this wasn't sort of dangerous. This was just sort of a general disregard for for the rules. And obviously, um, race direction gave the riders a very uh, a stern talking to. Um, do you think it helps, Neil? Uh, well, judging by what we saw in the race, I would say probably not. Uh, I mean, there was some pretty wild riding down into uh, turn one. Um, a couple of riders got t- taken out. Uh, there's a whole host along that penalties dished out by race direction. Um so no, I don't think it did help. Um, but it does seem that uh, it will be getting pretty tough. I mean, you mentioned the Darren Binder penalty. Um, like, I would say that that is pretty excessive, that penalty. But considering everything that had happened over the past couple of weeks and what race direction said they were going to do, 
I guess they had to say, well, look, this is it. Um, you know, Darren Binder was leaving pit lane when he crashed into the side of uh, what Joel Kelso, I think it was, yeah. in qualifying. Albeit because um, his team hadn't really given him enough time to get out of pit lane to do his um, his his outlap, and then you know he was kind of in a rush to to get and post the lap before the checkered flag came on. Uh, the team admitted that that was their mistake, but still, um, yeah, I mean that kind of thing is probably going to make riders um, think twice. But uh, it's it's so difficult in in these kind of big battles of. 12, 13 riders just to keep an eye on everything and uh, to try and keep it consistent because there are so many indiscretions. Yeah, exactly. And there's, I mean, uh, obviously what you want is to punish the real wrongdoers, um, but there is sort of so much grey area uh, that wherever you draw the line, it's going to be difficult to actually justify to one team why something happened rather than another. Um, I have... Uh, long been an advocate for being uh, both uh, uh, arbitrary and completely unfair and just uh, completely ruthless just you're disqualified and the explanation is you're disqualified because I've decided you're disqualified now go away and stop bothering me um, but you know teams would not be able to willing would be not willing to uh, put up with that but what you have to do is make the riders really, really afraid to actually break the rules they have to be on their toes all of the time right now all they're doing is pushing the limits and pushing the limits and pushing the limits. And it gets really, really difficult to actually uh, uh, you know, rein them back in because they're constantly looking for what they can get away with. They will always, I mean, you know, right, their riders, their teams, there's a lot at stake. You know, they will always try and, uh, well, always try and cheat, frankly. Um, and, you know, but it's only cheating if you get punished for it. Uh, so, yeah, they, you need to make them afraid of, of the consequences of race direction I don't think they're afraid of race direction and the stewards right now and that's the problem I think if um, if race direction told them they were disqualified maybe they wouldn't accept it but if it came from you Div uh, <laughs> I think uh, there would be a bit more iron fisted authority behind I it I would definitely yeah I, I basically I would just be wandering up and down pit lane with a baseball bat slapping it into my hand all the time yes exactly yes yes you outside <laughs> no I Yes. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Um, Model 3 race for sure. Um, do, do we think anyone can actually beat Pedro Acosta? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to think that, um, no, they can't really. Um, Just because of the consistency. I mean, we talked about this with Jean Wajer, with Juan Mir. We look, I mean, look back at 2019. I think it's going to be an interesting, at the end of um, uh, at the end of the season, to look back and say, and try and compare this with, Mark Marcus' 2019 season because it is it's that same kind of consistency you know always being there and thereabouts yeah yeah absolutely um, and I mean even his on his off days he's uh, he's been you know in the points and, and pretty much outscoring his rivals with maybe the exception of uh, of Barcelona two weeks ago um, so yeah Costa looking in, in ridiculously good shape um, and uh, yeah it's hard to see anyone beating him at this stage um, going to Assen he has experience there in the Red Bull Rookies Cup previously um, so let's see how he gets on there but um, yeah Moto3 always uh, delivers a bit of a barnstormer at Assen and uh, Acosta in this kind of form yeah, um, yeah you would be a fool to bet against him I feel 
Yeah, to, to an extent, it was it was quite a surprise to see the field so close together at a tax ring because you know there isn't really any way you can slipstream. It's much more of a, 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 a of a corner of a grip track, and yet we had a group of what is it ten, eight, ten or something that crossed the line together. So um, yeah, that's just it's just a really close class right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, moving our attentions to uh, model two. Um, we had uh, a pretty interesting race, a bit of a surprise just to see the extent of, uh, of Remy Gardner's domination there, Dave. But, um, I mean, the guy is clearly riding the crest of the wave, the first Australian to win three consecutive races in the intermediate class in Grand Prix racing. Um, I think there's only two riders now that have more, two Australian riders that have more wins in that particular class, like, you know, 250s or Moto2 um, in history. Um, and yeah, like Gardner, just like we say about Acosta, I'm not sure if you can really see many people, um, pulling them back in from here because not only is his championship lead up to 36 points, it's a, it's a decent margin now to have. Um, but he's just strong everywhere we go. Yeah. I mean, the two things that really stood out for me in the Moto2 race was first of all, just the, uh, the clear advantage that the, uh, Aki IOS KTM team have uh by lap what is it by lap four um gardner and uh, Farrell fernandez were basically four seconds clear of everyone else that is huge that's just you know they just cleared off right from the start um and then Gardner's riding was an absolute masterclass in that he knew that he had fernandez with him and he knew that fernandez was coming and he just piled on the pressure he just kept pushing 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 uh seeing you know so you want to you want to play you want to follow come on let's let's play let's see let's let's see what you're what you're capable of and he lured fernandez into ba- making a mistake basically and i think that was it was just a superb piece of of riding and i think um when we look back at the end of the season we're likely to be able to say like this was the moment where remy wrapped it up this is the moment where he won the championship because he's now got a, you know a big advantage what is it 40 odd points or something over um 36. yeah 36 but there you go he's got 36 points over um uh, uh over al fernandez that's a very comfortable uh that's a very comfortable lead that's a good position that's um uh yeah it's going to take a lot to get it back from uh, from remy unless he makes a mistake yeah, yeah, exactly. But Remy Gardner's worst performance so far this season has been a solitary fourth position. He's been in the podium in every other race. And uh, as we said, three victories now on a trot. Um, yeah, looking looking pretty unstoppable. And like the Saxon ring is always such a a tight track for Moto2 class. I mean, we, we, we see all that, obviously, in MotoGP, how ridiculously tight the, the lap times were, how tight the field was at the end of the race. Um, but in model two, I mean, you have regularly like 20 guys, 22 guys separated by a second. And for Remy just to, uh, to breeze off and, and win so commandingly, um, just spoke of, uh, where he's at at the moment. Everything has just fallen into place. And again, this was another track where he hadn't particularly had a good record in the past. I think his previous best at the Saxon ring was 11th. You know, it's not like this was his track. It wasn't like Mark Marquez coming here. Yeah. Um, yet he's still managing to pull things out of the hat. The same could be said in Barcelona. I think his, his record there was like 14th was his best result. And then he went and won the race pretty commandingly. So um, it's all looking, looking pretty good for him. Yeah, I mean, again, we speak about maturity of Acosta. 
Remy came here from a different position sort of thing. You sort of like felt he was messing around in the first few years. He wasn't quite sure what he was doing. It was clear that he had talent, but he didn't have the uh, the backing or the clarity of mind to understand like, this is what I need to do. Aki is obviously just really, really good for him. Um, he showed flashes last year as well um, of, of, of real, real talent. This year, uh, it's been, it's just been an, like, all of the pieces have fallen into place. He's just been so good everywhere. Um, and he's really, really, it's clear that he wants it. Someone has explained to him what he needs to do and he's doing it. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that Raul has been so strong, that's almost edging them on. They're both kind of inspiring each other in some respects to. And again, another sign of maturity is how he responds to pressure. And so far, uh, like for Raul, there's no shame in Raul Fernandez crashing out in what is his eighth Moto2 race, you know, you know, while, while battling for, for victory. That is exactly what you would expect of a rookie. So, I mean, that was just, it was a really good ride for him up until that point. But, um, you know, Remy, the way that he's coping with the pressure, the way that he's handling everything, it's just been very impressive. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out. I think Ralph Fernandez mentioned to Dazon, Spanish uh, MotoGP um, broadcaster, um, after the race that um, he had actually been carrying a training injury um, that he sustained, I think, on Monday before the race. And that was something that had been uh, inhibiting him. Not that you knew it from uh, his uh, performance up until then. I mean, he was on pole position by three-tenths of a second. But, um, yeah, quite remarkable that he was even able to be as fast as he was with that injury. So, um, yeah, Fernandez. And I mean, we're running out of superlatives for the kid, but very impressive indeed. What do we make of Aaron Connett's second place? Impressive, surprising. Yeah, very exactly. surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a great ride, but uh, you know, Connett has been another rider who's been uh, sort of up and down, and and really no idea where he might uh, sort of end up. Yeah. But uh, putting it mildly, Div. I mean, uh, yeah, Connett's been a real. Uh, head scratcher in fact that the Boscus girl chassis has kind of been like that this year um, I mean it's it, it's kind of good when it is good but um, you know but this is something we've seen with it historically though as well I mean you know there have been races where the Boscus girl it, it's one of those chassis which works either perfectly or is way off and um, I mean, whoever's been on that uh, on that chassis, we've seen the same uh, the, the same pattern where they've been able to win, or they've uh, been sort of struggling around to to, to, to even score points. So um, it it clearly works, but everything has to be right. The, the the window is pretty narrow. Yeah, yeah. And he had a crash on Friday morning, and then was just nowhere for the best part of the weekend. Um, managed to rescue a, a decent qualifying performance. Um, had a good race um, yeah impressive stuff from Kinect. Um he was saying afterwards that it bike's pretty much just the same as it was in Qatar um, and he was saying what you mentioned there the simple fact is that it just works really well in certain conditions at certain tracks and in other places it's nowhere um, and um, yeah I mean Kinect's comfortably been the best of the Bosque Scrolls this year Jorge Navarro's having a tough time of it um, uh, Albert Rennes has had uh, a few flashes recently as well, but um, but yeah, I mean it's uh, it was a decent ride from Canet. Yeah, pretty surprising considering the things. But I have to say, I was quite disappointed with. Um, I mean, Fernandez crashing out that uh, led to the, the the fact that Gardner was so far ahead at the front. But I was expecting a bit more from Di Antonio. I mean, his pace was good, qualified well, was pretty much up at the top all session or sorry all weekend long. Um, was saying that. They've sort of refunded the feeling that they had at Jerez, um, where he obviously dominated the race there. 
and we didn't see anything from De Antonio in the race to suggest that he could have he could have lived with Gardner for any part of the race, um, which yeah, I found quite strange. Yeah, I, I mean, Saxon Ring is a strange track. I mean, the, the the fact that an injured Mark Marcus just walked away in MotoGP is also partly a sign of just how unusual it is. Um, so maybe he just couldn't find it. And I think also, like, tyres always still play a really big role um, uh, in Moto2 and especially the Saxon ring and about managing the tyres. Um, uh, the uh, left side of the tyre gets really, really hot and you have to be able to cope with that. So uh, if you get it right, then you can make a big difference. And uh, obviously the, the the IO guys really did make the difference, uh, whereas others were struggling more with it. Mm, yeah, I think it something similar in MotoGP. Um the Dunlop guys brought a pretty hard allocation to Germany. Um, they say it's pretty much the, the the toughest place along with Phillip Island that uh, we go to in the calendar for tyre life. They didn't have any concerns really about the consistency of the rear tyres, but they said that the front tyre temperatures they were seeing from guys after FP2, FP3. Yeah, I mean, it's unusual because we had unusual weather conditions. It was exceptionally hot. I mean, we've had uh, in the past, we've had sort of, it's been hot there, uh, but, you, you know, the, the, the track temperatures were much hotter than normal. normal Normally what you get is sort of it'll be cold in the morning and hot in the afternoon um, or you might get sort of a little bit of cloud or whatever but there was a proper heat wave there. I mean you were uh, you were basking in the uh, in the Saxon ring heat there. Um, uh, I'm sure you... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, you saw it in tyre wear. It really made a difference in terms of uh, in terms of tyres. You, would you share your... Um, or would you share my belief that... Uh, Marco Bezzecchi has been a little bit disappointing this year. I mean, I'm kind of waiting for that sort of spark, that moment where it all clicks and he's yeah. fighting at the front, but it's, it's just not coming. No, no. And yet um, he was on the podium. Um, again, yes, he has been disappointing and he hasn't been able to take the fights to, uh, uh, to you know, Remy Gardner and Ralph Fernandez. He's always been there or thereabouts, though, which I think is promising... Uh, I mean, it shows that there is something there, but he needs to make a step if he has any hope of the champion of you know of, of launching a title um, uh, campaign. Then he really, really has to uh, start to sort of stepping up. But he, it feels like he's sort of stuck at a certain point. Um, he hasn't been uh, able to make the step that he needs to actually fight with them um, uh, with that. He is uh, disappointing. I think is is strong. It's a little strong. It's just that uh, you know he's been good, but the good is just not good enough. You know you have to have days where you're great, and my, and Bezeki is not really. I mean, there's only been a couple of times that I can think that he actually looked like you know being in the mix, and a lot of the time he is. Uh, you know, on the podium, but right at riding around sort of uh, a long way behind the others. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so Bezeki, yeah, third place, I think fourth podium of the year. And um, we mentioned Dejan Antonio not quite uh, living up to his pre-race billing, um, but I guess a man that exceeded um, his pre-race billing was Sam Lowe's because he was pretty lost, I think. Uh, well, lost might be putting it a bit strongly, but not comfortable either. Yeah, exactly. I, I bumped into Sam on my way here and he was talking to it and he says, yeah, he just doesn't like the Saxon ring. He doesn't like the track at all. Uh, so to come away with a fifth place is pretty good. Um, also, he was talking about the mistakes that he made, you know, like uh, 
Um, sometimes it's his own mistake. Sometimes, you know, it's just one of those things, sort of race, uh, race incident. But he, what I like about it is the fact that he is making a, he's regrouping. You can see him regrouping and, uh, uh really making, uh, you, that's making a difference. It, uh, that is making, that's the way to recover when you, you know, get off. Cause he got off to a really good start at the start of the season, had a couple of mistakes, um, uh, and came back, uh, is, is starting to come back strong, sort of starting to come back to regroup. We're at Aston. I think it's a track, uh, a track he likes, goes well at. Um, this would be a good opportunity for him. And I have to say, actually, Aston, I'm interested to see what Bo Ben Snyder can do here because Bo for the first time is, uh, I mean, like he always has a lot of pressure when he comes at a home race and, you know, the expectations are a bit overblown, but this time the expectations not so overblown because he's been having a, you know, a decent season. He didn't have a, a particularly fantastic race at, uh, um, in Germany, you know, 13th. Um, but, you know, coming off some decent results recently, there's going to be a lot of focus on him, um, uh, here. Big, uh, well, we have what, 12,000 fans allowed through the kids? 11,500 fans are, are allowed. It's a bit unfortunate because, um, as of uh, Saturday, the Dutch government ha- will be opening up, um, all events and all the rest of it to people who are tested. And so, uh, but actually organizing these, this was a decision made a long time ago. And so it's too late to actually change it to allow more fans into the race. Um, but yes, it was a, uh, uh having 11,500 fans, I think that's going to be, uh, very different. I think it's going to be, uh, very positive and, you know, it's going to be great for, well, it's going to be great for everybody, but it's, you know, it's also going to be great for, uh, Bo Ben Snyder, I think also just because, uh, you know, having a hundred thousand fans there is different to can be an overawing effect. Whereas having eleven thousand fans there is, you know, you really feel the support, but you don't feel the same level of intense, insane pressure. And um, I mean, we we spoke a little bit about this during the preseason. How is how is Aston surviving? With it's been a really difficult year. Last year, um, they lost a lot of money. They lost uh, something like three million euros. They basically burned through all of their reserves, and they just spent all of their reserves. Uh, resurfacing the track. Um, what's amazing is how much of a, or how few people actually work at a circuit. Uh, uh, most events are run by volunteers. Um, there is sort of, you know, occasional temporary staff come in to do all sorts of, uh, all sorts of stuff. But in terms of actual permanent staff, it's a very, very small uh, group of people. Um, that, makes it uh, on the one hand a little bit easier but also a little bit more difficult because the track is not actually uh, available for uh, or it doesn't actually receive ex- you know additional some of the additional government support which other organizations would have got uh, but you know everyone they were managed to keep on an even keel 11,500 fans uh, allows them to at least sort of cover most of their expenses would have been better to have a, another race, but they they couldn't have survived another year um, uh, with you know with, with nothing at all. They really needed they really needed this, and it's going to be really important. Obviously, we've got World, uh, World Superbikes coming here in July. Um, that should be pretty much open to the public, I should think. Unfortunately, usually a lot of British fans come over. I think uh, a lot of British fans uh, will be unable to because we still uh, have the issue with the Delta variant in, in the UK and travelling 
specifically from the UK to Europe is more, much more difficult. Uh, but there should be more fans. That should also be good. And then, you know, Aston are really looking forward to having a proper race next year, open doors, uh, full of fans, all the rest. Yeah, fingers crossed that that is the case. I mean, it's great to be back in the Netherlands, Dave, your native homeland. Yes, indeed. It's yes. a lovely country. That's why I live here. Exactly. Lovely country, lovely people, uh, lovely log fires as well. And uh, some of the living rooms that uh, are dotted around the country. Um, but it brings us to a close for uh, our extra show. Uh, sorry, for our follow-on show. Um, this has been the Paddock Pass podcast, fueled by Elf Mark VDS Racing. Um, I've been Neil Morrison. And you have been David Emmett. I have been. Yes. And uh, we'll be back, um, well, f on Friday, I guess, for uh, our Paddock Notes uh, extra shows, which are uh, available uh, to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, uh, upper tier, uh, and you can become one of them for as little as $10 a month, uh, you'll have access to uh, yeah, the Paddock Notes, which uh, we record every day over a race weekend. Yeah, and also look out for the Paddock Extra Show with uh, Rob Gray, Polarity Photo, and Cormac Ryan Meenan of um, uh, Cormac GP. Uh, they speak about you know being a photographer, not just in MotoGP, but also what it was like to be in a, a photographer during the during the pandemic. And that was that was a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, and that is available to our uh, lower tier Patreon subscribers. Exactly. So if you are a subscriber, uh, check that out. You definitely won't want to don't want to miss that. And if you aren't a subscriber, maybe consider uh, taking out a subscription. It helps keep the Paddock Pass podcast on the road and, uh, well, staying in uh, staying in hotels with nice log fires yes. uh, as a backdrop. <laughs> it, keeps us in, it keeps us in gas log fires. <laughs> exactly. What more could you ask for? Uh, so, David, thank you very much for joining us once again. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. And we'll be back again soon. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.